It's an amazing thing to be forgiven, isn't it? When we had a marriage conference here a couple months ago, we, we brought in a speaker, a buddy of mine named Fran Shaka, not really a buddy, more of a mentor, I should say. And in our workbook that we've been doing and follow-up materials, the, the, the point was made in this book that instead of just saying, I'm sorry to your spouse when you've messed up, it's better to say, would you forgive me? Because to be forgiven is such a powerful thing. It's a status change. We're going to talk about being forgiven today and what that looks like and what that means. So next week, we're going to conclude this whole series, 12 weeks, I think it's the longest series I've ever done here. And thank you for hanging in there and bearing with us as I work to get my doctorate done as well. This is part of my doctoral work. And we're going to cover the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting uh, next week. And I'm not saying that we're never going to say the Apostles' Creed again here at Woodmont, but we will certainly take a nice break from it. Uh, so today we're going to focus on just four words of this creed, just four words that need its own sermon. Really, we could spend 12 weeks just on these four words and, and what they mean because of the huge implications that these words have for our lives. These words are the forgiveness of sins. When we stand together and we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're making a bold claim indeed. So our text for today comes from the letter to the Romans, which is this great, rich theological text that can nourish our weary souls. So I pray that it will do that for us today. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word as I read Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. Man, I love the letter to the Romans. Every chapter of this letter is just oozing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a manifesto of the grace of God that's been freely given to us in Christ. And Romans is Paul's most complete theological work. It's, it's very defined in how he structured it. And he begins this letter by showing us how the, the righteousness of God, God's perfection, God's holiness, his standard of righteousness has been revealed to us through the gospel, through the, the work and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17, these 
two verses are really the theme of the whole letter. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, that word in Greek is good news. I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is the power, we're just saying of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is such a powerful text, isn't it? Paul's saying that the good news that God sent his only son into our world to rescue us and to bring us back into himself and to to give us words of life and then to die an atoning death on the cross in in our place and then to rise again, conquering death and the grave and the power of sin forever. That that gospel is the power of God to save. It's the means by which we are rescued from our sins. And the word for power in in Greek is the word dynamis. It's like dynamite, right? What this is saying is that the gospel is God's dynamite that obliterates our sin and everything that hinders us from coming to holy God honestly and completely. And what does it mean to be saved anyway? That's one of those kind of church words you may hear in an evangelical context. You know, are you saved, brother? Are you Do you need to get saved tonight? Or I was saved when I was eight years old. What are we talking about when we say saved? Usually theologians talk about salvation or or being saved in in three general kind of stages. And you may have heard this before. When we encounter the living Jesus for the first time, and when we have an overwhelming sense of his grace and the free gift of salvation that he holds out to us. And we surrender all that we are to him. Next week, we're going to celebrate baptism of Elliot Carpenos, and we're going to uh, hear his testimony, how he has accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his master, as his savior of his heart and his life forever and ever. When we do that, we become justified before God. Justification is the first step in our salvation. I'll talk more about justification in just a minute. But salvation doesn't end there, right? God issues this invitation to all of us to come and be justified just as you are with all of your baggage, all of your hurts, habits, and hang-ups, as Celebrate Recovery says, to come to him just as you are for justification. But... Then he says, don't stay that way, though. (laughs) After you are justified begins the work of sanctification. You become sanctified. And that's the long road of discipleship, right? Becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like Adam and Eve, our fallen ancestors. It, It means to become more holy, more conformed to the image of Christ. When does that process end? When does sanctification end? Well, it doesn't. Not in this life, anyway. Sanctification really ends when the third phase of salvation begins, which is glorification. We're going to talk about this all next week. Basically, glorification begins when Jesus bursts back into our world and says, enough! No more sin, no more violence, no more injustice, poverty, war, all of it. Stop. 
And he sets up his new kingdom and heaven and earth become one. And we get to reign with him in glory forever as fellow heirs of the covenant promises. That we are co-heirs with Christ reigning with him in glory forever. Justification, sanctification, glorification. All accomplished by the power of the cross, the power of the gospel that is at work in our lives. That's what Romans is all about. So the very next verse in chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul launches into this lengthy explanation of how since God's righteousness has been revealed, then all us Gentiles, all of us non-Jewish people stand guilty before God's standard of holiness. Compared to God's perfection, we stand guilty and condemned. We are without his covenant promises that he made to the, the Jews, and we find ourselves separated from God by our sins. And then in chapter 2, Paul goes on to say, but hey, you Jewish people too, you also stand condemned. All of your outward displays of religiosity don't amount to anything before God's holiness. No matter how many lambs you slay, it's never enough to atone for your sins. And then finally in chapter 3, Paul says, the whole world is lost The whole world is in need of rescuing and redemption, bringing back to God. Look at verse 10 in chapter 3. He's quoting here from Psalm 14. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Not anybody on the planet is righteous. And in verse 20, he kind of summarizes the whole last three chapters. He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin doesn't save you, it only condemns you. You know, this is a hard concept for us to grasp, isn't it? Because our, our whole kind of Western culture is built on this idea of achievement, on, on human effort, and, and reaping what you sow. The American dream is that if you work hard enough, you can have a good life. But Paul says here, hard work and keeping the law is only going to earn you condemnation. It's only going to show you how, fall, how far short you've fallen of God's standard of perfection. He's saying that no one will be justified before God through human effort, no matter how great you may think you are. So so what is justification? He says no one will be justified before God through human effort. What is justification? It's a legal term, actually. It means that one's name has been cleared. To be justified means to be found not guilty and declared innocent instead. To be found innocent instead of guilty. And the, the hard concept that we have of this, unless, you know, you've, you've come through the, the prison system or something, is that most of us think, well, I'm not guilty. I've never been in a court of law. I've never been condemned by a court. I've never been found guilty by a jury of my peers. I've never, you know, killed anyone or dealt drugs. So I'm, I'm innocent. I'm a good person. I, I go to church pretty regularly. I even give some money. I was a deacon a couple of years ago, you know. We, we tend to think, that we are good people. 
when in fact we are desperately sick with a terminal illness of sin. A lot of folks in our culture say to ourselves, surely I'm right before God. I pay my taxes. I vote in all the elections. Surely I don't need to be justified. But that's missing the point of Romans. I remember teaching a high school Bible study a few years ago when I was a youth minister, and I had a group of high school boys I was leading, and and I asked them, what's the standard of of righteousness that God requires for, for you to get into heaven? for you to go to heaven. And they, they basically kind of murmured, you know, be a good person, you know, do some good things, go to church, maybe even be baptized kind of thing. And I said, no, all that is falling way short. And they were like, what? I said, only perfection gets into heaven. And they said, what? We can't, that means we're all in trouble then. It's, it's a, hopeless. Who's perfect? No one's perfect. How are we possibly supposed to get into heaven if only perfection gets into heaven. We're all in trouble. And I said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> they basically said that, that being a good person would get you into heaven, but then I read Romans 3, verses 9 through 20 to them and showed them that, that all human effort amounted to nothing. And, and out of their panic, and I just nodded and said, yeah, we're in the same sinking boat of sin. Where do we turn? That's when we read chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the whole story of Scripture is about Jesus. Every page whispers his name. We get to live in this period of history, in salvation history, where the righteousness of God has shown up, not as a list of do's and don'ts, but as a person. incarnated in our very world, what we're going to celebrate here in Advent season next month. Jesus Christ embodied God's perfection for us. He is the promised Messiah, the anointed one that the scriptures bore witness to. He's the one that brings us righteousness, not because of any work that we've done, but because of God's grace and the riches of his mercy and love. Verse 22, the next verse says that Jesus brought us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all stand condemned before the standard of God's holy perfection. All have sinned. And, and what is sin? Again, that's one of those kind of church words that we talk about, but what does it mean? What is sin? Well, the Greek word for sin is hamartia, and it literally means missing the mark. We've missed the mark. God's standard of perfection, his holiness, is like this little tiny bullseye on this massive target, right? And we're, we're standing a thousand yards away with some 16th century bow and arrow, trying to hit this tiny little bullseye. And no matter how accurate we may be, how strong we may be, how skilled we may be, experienced we may be as an archer, no human is capable of hitting this tiny little bullseye on this massive target through any human effort. And the crazy thing is that some of us say, well, I I got kind of close to the bullseye. I'm like 
you know, a couple inches away from the bullseye. That's amazing. That's the best shot ever. I'm an incredible archer. I just about hit God's standard of perfection. And God says it doesn't matter. It's a bullseye or nothing. If you went four feet and dropped in the dirt, that's the same thing as missing it by a millimeter. It's all the same. So the next time we're tempted to pass judgment on someone who's on the street, maybe they're selling the contributor down here, and we have a tendency to say, man, they made a mess of their life. We need to remember that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We've all missed the mark. So do we panic? Is there any hope? Yes, of course, there's good news. Verse 24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, not through striving, not through keeping the rules, but through faith. I love that word propitiation. That's in the English standard version that I'm reading. Other translations say sacrifice of atonement or something like that. It's the same word hilasterion in Greek that referred to the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they had the two cherubim with the, the wings touching. It was here on the, the, the mercy seat, as it was called, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It was on that lid that the high priest made atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and pray that God would atone for the sins of the nation. That's the same word referring to the sacrifice that Christ became for us. A propitiatory sacrifice is one that deflects wrath and turns it to favor. It, it takes the bad and turns it to good. That's where this whole thing is headed. Keep going. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what the cross is all about. It's the place where God's love, his perfect, amazing, reckless, overwhelming love and his perfect justice meet, right? God didn't say to our, our sinful selves, oh, your sin, not that big a deal. I'm just gonna let it slide. That wouldn't make him a just God, right? We know as parents that we don't let our children's mistakes escape without consequences, not if we really love them and want what's best for them. God loves us and wants what's best for us, and he doesn't let our sins go unpunished because he is a good God. But in the cross of Christ, God forged a way to remain both just and still justify sinners. He didn't pour out his wrath on sin where we were and say to us, none of you hit the mark. You all failed miserably. None of you are worthy of me. Go away from my sight. I can't stand you. His love demanded a way that he forged to make us sinners right with himself, the just and holy God. He is both just and the justifier. 
And you know the amazing thing about justification is that it's not merely forgiveness for our sins, it's forgiveness plus a declaration of innocence. It's a public declaration that we are declared not guilty. It's both a washing away of past sins and also a gift of right standing before God. It was Martin Luther, the reformer, who called this the great exchange. Christ took all of our sin and guilt and shame upon himself, nailed it to the cross, and exchange gave us his perfect righteousness that he earned by living a sinless life as God in the flesh. Jesus became what we were, trapped, guilty, condemned. He became that so that we could become what he is, perfectly righteous in God. The way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, it was in the song that we sang, The Power of the Cross, is this, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does that mean for us today? Well, if you're in Christ and have received his imputed righteousness, don't you love that word, imputed? That means he put it inside of us. His imputed righteousness by grace through faith and his atoning sacrifice and his ability to make us right. It means that you've been given gifts, it says. We've been given three gifts specifically that I want to mention today. You know, in our family, Morgan and I give each of our kids three gifts on Christmas to remind them of the wise men and the three gifts that the Bible mentions that they brought. We who are in Christ have been given three gifts as well because of our justification in Christ. First, we have a new status. We are no longer condemned as criminals. We're not just the not good enoughs who failed to hit the mark. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our name is cleared and we are counted righteous before holy God. When I was called to be the senior pastor at Woodmont Baptist Church, it didn't really sink in that I was the pastor here until Richard bought me a little nameplate from my desk and I, I set it on my desk and I, I looked at it and there it is. It says senior pastor, Woodmont Baptist Church. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. I can't believe that. I meet people all the time. They're like, oh, are you the youth minister there? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm the senior pastor. They're like, what? You? Really? <laughs> Friends from high school that see it on TV, they're like, what are you doing on TV? This pastor. I, I don't know. God did it. <laughs> the new status that I was given by God and by the people of this church who called me to be the pastor was engraved in this block and put on my desk and it just made it more real to me. In the old hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, the hymn writer says, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. The second gift that we now have is a new family. We're fully adopted with all the benefits of being family, of a son or a daughter, into the new people, the new covenant family of God. 
So therefore, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, even male or female, but all are one in Jesus Christ, in our new family. That transcends all the social boundaries that this world may impose on us. We are one now. I was talking to, I think it was Wade Rowett, Dr. Rowett, about, and he was telling me about missionaries in Africa that were saying that all their co-workers, they call them aunts and uncles, and the children refer to them all as aunts and uncles because they are family. They take that very seriously. They are family who are actually bonded closer than blood. And finally, the last gift is we have a new future. In Christ, we've been transformed into one degree of glory into another, awaiting a glorious inheritance that's kept for us in heaven and will never perish, spoil, or fade. We know where this story is headed. We're going to talk about it next week. Our glorification will be the final chapter. This allows us to face tomorrow, no matter who wins in an election, no matter who's in authority over us in this world, we can face tomorrow with hope and courage and conviction that our Redeemer lives. I know whom I have believed and believe that he will stand upon the earth at the last. And before we conclude today, I, I just I wanted us to consider this fact that if you feel like you have done too much. I've, I've met with people in my, council, in my office over and over again who said, yeah, but can God really forgive me? I've done things you don't know about, preacher. I've done some horrible things in my life. I, I want us to consider that no one is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. It's impossible to, far too, to fall too far to the point where God's grace cannot reach you. Think about the historical context in which the creed developed. This is fascinating. You know, the phrase, the forgiveness of sins, takes on an added meaning when you know what was going on during this time. You know that in, in the early Christian church, massive full-scale persecutions against Christians were erupting in the Roman Empire. In 250 AD, the Roman Emperor Decius ordered every single person who lived within a, a Roman-controlled province to perform a mandatory sacrifice to the Roman gods and to the emperor. Christians were specifically mentioned in the order that they had to choose between Caesar or Christ. And you know what happened to many of those who refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Many of them died. And 50 years later, Diocletian also ordered Christians to sacrifice to the Roman gods or face death. Again, many were executed. But a significant number of people who had been baptized as believers actually renounced their faith and refused to acknowledge Christ, and they performed the, the sacrifices. When each period of persecution ended, we know from church history that Christianity continued to grow, and then the question of the fate of those who came back to the faith after they had renounced Christ it led to these long and painful debates and divisions. Should they be readmitted into the communion of the saints? Should they be rebaptized? Have they committed an unforgivable sin? It was argued and debated for, for many years. Even uh, two different popes had this huge argument about it. And, and this takes on special meaning. Do we really believe in forgiveness of sins? There's an Australian theologian named Ben Myers who wrote, in his book, Christian Teachers During This Time argued that the church includes everyone 
who confesses Jesus as Lord and is baptized. It's not only for the pure and spiritually successful. Failures in discipleship, even dramatic public failures, do not exclude a person from the grace of God. The forgiveness of sins has taken place once and for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when we affirm that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, it's not merely a statement of personal repentance, but it's a matter of church structure and community. Those who have failed miserably, if they turn back and repent, are accepted with open arms, period. Rebaptism is not necessary. Pain penance is not necessary. I want to close with this movie clip. I haven't done this before, but I love this old movie, The Mission, 1986. Anybody seen it? Robert De Niro and, and Jeremy Irons. I think it's based on a true story. A Jesuit priest, Father Gabriel, Portuguese priest, played by Jeremy Irons, is evangelizing a, a native tribe in the northern part of Brazil in the mountains in the 1800s. And, and Robert De Niro is this Portuguese slave trader and mercenary who ends up going to prison. He kills a, his brother-in-law and he has a come to Jesus moment in prison and Father Gabriel uh, leads him to the Lord. And he asks Gabriel, what, what do I have to do to make penance? And Gabriel comes up with this idea and he ties this net full of heavy armor and, and shields and he puts them in a net and he puts it over, uh, over Robert De Niro and ties it on him and he tells him to carry it up the waterfalls to where the indigenous tribe is living. And this is the tribe that Robert De Niro had been persecuting as slaves. He'd been literally making a living off of snatching them and selling them as property for years and years. He's killed many of them in the process. It's a death sentence to walk into the village empty-handed, exhausted, with all these pounds of armor tied around him, and just watch what happens. Fuck <laughs> 
All this mercenary had known his whole life was violence. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And what he didn't know is that this tribe had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And when he expected retribution, what he received instead was grace and forgiveness. His chains were gone. His burden of sin was thrown in the river and washed away, never to come back. I know there's some of you here today that are carrying a, ba- a burden that you don't need to carry anymore. Maybe you've been carrying this guilt, this shame that Christ wants to cut off of you today and throw in the river and get rid of forever. Do you know in your heart of hearts that you have been forgiven? Do you know that you've been freely given a new status, a new family, a new future? Do you know that if you are in Christ, this is your reality? If we live into that knowledge, we can't help but forgive others who have trespassed against us, right? Let's pray now that the Lord would help us to live into forgiveness more and more. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that when we were without hope and found ourselves in the sinking boat of sin and shame, condemned by our separation from you and our sins, when we have missed the mark, whether by a mile or by a millimeter, you have given us your perfect bullseye. You have given to us the righteousness that was yours and yours alone that you had earned. When we had earned death, you gave us life instead. You cut the burden off of our backs when we were exhausted and couldn't go on. And you threw it away so it never can come back. Forgive us for living with that burden, still trying to carry it around when you have forgiven us through amazing grace. I pray that you would help us to live into that reality, to know how great the weight of sin was that we did indeed carry, that we were indeed hopeless, diagnosed with a terminal illness of sin with no hope of a cure. And you rescued us, not because of anything that we had done, but because of your great love and your perfect mercy. I pray that you would help us to forgive others who sin against us now, because who are we to hold a grudge when you have forgiven us of the ultimate sin of rebelling against you openly? God, I pray that you would help us to show grace like the native tribe there in in the movie showed to this slave trader who had been persecuting them to show him an embrace and welcome the sinner into our fold. I pray that you would help us to remember that all have sinned and fall short. It doesn't matter if they're a preacher or a prostitute, that all have sinned and fall short. 
God, we pray now as you taught your disciples to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never accepted the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers you through the, the grace of God and the mercy of God in the cross of Christ, I invite you to come and talk to me about that today. Maybe you feel like Robert De Niro there and you're carrying this burden that you don't need to carry anymore and you're ready to come lay it down. I invite you to come to the altar. Come talk to me about it now during our time of invitation. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont and be a part of what God's doing here. I was talking to Dottie and Greg. They said that this is a special place and God's doing some special things. We don't even realize it, how special it is that God's doing things at Woodmont. If you want to be a part of it and you're ready to make that commitment to be a member, come talk to me about that today. Maybe you just want to come pray with somebody. I'm going to invite Scott Collier if you'll come stand here. And then Jan, if you'll come up here as well. If you want to pray with Scott or Jan, people who I respect greatly, if you want to just have a word of prayer with someone, we'll be here to pray with you as well. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation.